Good. I like to ask for your attention. I thought I go inflict some Buddhist psychology on you tonight. I'd like to speak about desire, both the Buddhist concept of desire and the actual psychological experience of that quality. I believe it is useful to gain some clarity of this notion and kind of shed some light on some of his aspects. You see, in an ideal world, we would first gain a set of optimal circumstances to practice. We would say, learn to make the mind very quiet, and then use that quiet to investigate um, the things that are challenging in our lives. We would have endless time to develop that quiet and we would have plenty of support. We would also have optimum, optimal conditions, and plenty of teaching and so forth. And then we would use all our skills, and particularly the stillness of mind, um, to actually address, investigate, transform the things that are difficult in our lives or that we need to understand. But this isn't an ideal world. So uh, we are, um, while we're trying to investigate their minds and while we're trying to still the mind, we continue living. We continue having responsibilities, relationships, jobs. We, um, We have to acknowledge that besides our contemplative aspirations, there are a few other things going on in our lives. So... We need to have something transportable, something that can be practiced before things are perfect. There's two things which stop us from actually getting anywhere in our lives. One of them is perfectionism. The other thing is basically laziness, comfort, domesticity, and the... The, the smug feeling of we're able to get away with it. It's not good, but basically we're going to get away with it. Yeah. If you want a Buddhist take on this, it is the pernicious belief that, that samsara somehow is manageable. Yeah? If I know enough about it, I'll get the bait off the hook and I'll get around things. Somehow I can muddle through. These two facets, perfectionism, you know, I'm not even good enough to be able to start here, really. You know, I need to really go back to get myself prepared so that I can properly start. If you have this kind of feeling, then you're probably in the domain of the perfectionist, yeah? Or the feeling, well, let's see what we can get from these Buddhists, you know, learn a few tricks and then kind of go and live my life um, um, learn a few tricks and then don't change anything in my life. Just, just be smarter in what I do anyway. And if it's really bad, 
once a year I come and drive it down to Gaia House and they hopefully fix me into I'll come and pick it up on Friday evening or so, and it's going to be a little nicer, a little more loving, a little more quiet, you know, and and so forth. So one of the tasks we have is we have to orient. We have to gain some kind of orientation in what's going on in our lives. I'm speaking our lives as meditators. I'm speaking our... Um, our lives is um, inside and on and off retreat, basically. This holds true for both situations. You agree with me, this is an artificial situation. This is a situation which uh, is probably different from most of the other situations in your life in, in big ways. And yet, this is the idea for this is a laboratory situation. You know, we're doing a test tube number on mind inquiry here. Well, our inquiries into mind are given optimum circumstances here at Gaia House. Knowing that this is probably not the case in all the rest of your lives, we try to make the best out of this condition and hope to transport some of what we have learned here into the rest of our lives. So, First task is to orient how can I actually get a perspective on what is going on in my uh, mind right now. What is there? What is missing? What is dominant? What are my resources? What are my challenges? No technique, no method will really make you free. I am all in favor of techniques and methods and I'm using a number of them myself. I teach a number of them. Um, And yet I am in no doubt that there is no technique or no method that will make the mind free, that will make this heart um, whole or complete. So if you have invested in a technique or in a method, uh, great, they are useful. They are a means to help to bring something about, but they will never make you free. You know? There is no trick that gets you out of the mud. There is no trick that snaps you into uh, enlightenment or into awakening. You will need more than one trick. Yeah. And to choose which of your tricks in, in, in the bag are, are actually most applicable right now. You need to have some assessment of what's going on. You need to be able to see how much energy is there, uh, what kind of affliction is there, what, what, is my, what are my strengths, you know, what am I actually good at. We're very keen on telling ourselves and others what we're not good at. You know. Sometimes I ask people... They're quite happy to tell me what's wrong with them. They can't concentrate. They live heedless lives. They um, they do dreadful things. Their minds are um, horrific scenarios of distraction, desires, hatreds, and so forth. And then I ask, well, what's good in you? And they say, well, it's actually quite hard. I like animals, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
we're not very good sometimes at finding out what we can do or what we're, what we're good at. Or we're quite sort of hesitant about acknowledging that we have virtues. But, you know, any, any self-respecting practitioner needs to have a, a non-inflated notion of what they actually have in place. You know, you all have things in place. You have all... Uh, I'm sure if we'd pool what we have here, you know, there's considerable competence in many, many domains. Um, so it's important that you have not just a notion of the things that are challenging or that you feel you are deficient in, but you also have a notion of what actually what you can, what you are able, what you, where you have proficiency in and competence, strength, structure, stamina, patience, insight, and so forth. So orienting is the major first task. Grounding, when we speak of formal meditation practice, and then getting in touch with what is happening. One of the things that may happen is something Buddhist psychology calls desire. The word for it in Pali is tanha, trishna, and the translation for it, desire, is accurate. The metaphor, obviously, is thirst. That's the literal translation for tanha or trishna. It's is the the sense of being thirsty. Something is wanting here, and I look, I have an urge to be quenched. Now, this is a strong metaphor. I think it's quite striking. And, and yet, it is important to understand that the Buddhist notion of desire, of tanha, is broader than we would probably understand the notion of desire in English language, as far as I have understood of that. In Buddhist psychology, we make big distinctions between three major domains of this desire. One aspect of this desire is both probably the ones you, you would easy, most easily recognize. It is the desire for things to happen in our senses. Well, it is the desire to see things, hear things, touch things, uh, to taste things, to smell things, to experience things, basically. Yeah. That's what the Buddhist teaching calls kamatanha, the desire for sensory enjoyment, sensory pleasure, sensory stimulation. Yeah. If you suspect that you don't have such desires... Um, I guess you better come and see me afterwards, because <laughs> you're in trouble. <laughs> um, you, you're quite likely to have lots of those desires, even though you may feel that you're not particularly desirous type, or that you, you're quite normal or so. Um, indeed, it is a sign of your normality that you have such desires. Um, often we don't know to what degree we have such de- types of desire, because we can actually gratify them. Yeah. We often only acknowledge a type of desire if we cannot gratify that desire. Then we start to experience the actual pull. Yeah. We start to actually experience the force behind that. So it's easy, 
uh, with satiated desires to minimize the impact of desire in your life. Interesting, uh, it will only get if you actually either voluntarily uh, fast some of your desires, then you will get a lot more in touch with the strength that is behind the pull or the push in our senses. Um, if you have decided to stop eating for you know a week or two, or you'll pr- suddenly find yourself having the most vivid recollection of uh, these uh, tortellini gorgonzola you have eaten 15 years ago. Not just will you have vivid mental recollections of this, you will have actually, you know, gustatory recalls, so much so that you start salivating there. Of something, or for something, if one had asked you a few days before, you wouldn't have recalled the incident, yeah. But in some recess of your mind, you know, this is still there, although it is not long, no longer actively available. A few days of fasting suddenly can bring about the memory, you know, the synapses work again suddenly. You know. um, sometimes on, on retreat you um, try to refrain from reading. And if you look back on... Uh, a couple of years of compulsive reading, like I assume many of you uh, do, I certainly have done, and then um, not reading is really quite a challenge. You know? I am used to kind of cognitive input. Uh, and um, you may actually find yourself a couple of days into your retreat sitting on the loo, grabbing the cleaning <laughs> bottle and, you know, <laughs> eagerly, you know, read the ingredients of the the toilet cleaner just because something is better than nothing just you know anything to kind of feed into you know your hungry cognitive mind um, if you're in a hospital for a few days and it's really sterile and clean and white and so and somebody comes and visits you and ah oh, what a relief smells of cigarettes and a leather jacket or you know it's quite um, quite an experience, quite a sensory experience. Touch, yeah. or being in, indoors for a long time, coming out, seeing the light. There was a time in my life I was an avid climber and uh, remember getting lost in caves, losing sense of time, and getting locked in there and coming out much, much later than we thought. And seeing the light for the first time after having been down there sort of 36 hours, you know, kind of seeing the first daylight, not particularly bright daylight, you know, winter afternoon. We go cave climbing, you do in winter in the mountains because you don't have rain. You know, if it rains, it snows. That's not dangerous for water. So, you know, pale, wintry afternoon light suddenly is exquisite an experience. You know, something in you just kind of perks up. You know, you're almost on your knees for this. So, just simple deprivation of sensory experience will often make us highly aware of that force in our senses that is looking for stimulation. If you're going to be strict psychologically, you have um, 
not quite sure whether I, I know how to translate this into English properly. You have something like a functional pleasure. It is a pleasure that has to do with the bare fact of being stimulated at all, irrespective of whether you like the stimulus or not. The sheer fact that one sense field is stimulated is intrinsically more pleasurable than the non-stimulation of that. Now, usually you don't have to stoop so low. You know, usually you have a bit of selection going on, and you obviously choose the bits that are pleasant and that are agreeable. So, but if you actually have nothing at all, say going to into a samadhi tank, for example, or going into a um, going into a place where where you have no sound, yeah. Yes. Forgot what it is called in English. A, a chamber where all sound is muffled. Or Yeah, thank you. Um anechoic chamber, yeah. Or if you're in the dark, yeah, you realize you become aware how much in you is craving to be stimulated. Just with anything. You forget all your good taste, all your delicate grooming, all your refinement. You just give up on that. I was a very cultivated tea drinker before I joined monastic life. And uh, one of the sufferings I experienced was, uh, you know, being at the mercy of some ill-motivated novice who had no idea of tea, who would just kind of chuck in a handful of British rail into an aluminium pot and slowly bring it to the boil, you know. You know, it's horrified and... You know, a couple of weeks into that, I gratefully was lapping it up. It was hot, it was sweet, it was warm. You know, I didn't give a damn to be, you know, all my refinement was overboard. That's the only thing I got. You know, desire is like a cat. Where it gets something, it comes and visits again. If it doesn't get something, it'll come and check. Daily, then longer intervals. At the end of it, you know, every six months it'll make around. You're part of the loop, but basically, uh, it's it goes where it can get something. Uh, desire is quite, quite economical. So, karmatana, I think, is obvious. Yeah? It's the wish for us to experience world. It's the the wish to be met in our sensory realm. It's a deep profound connection we establish with world, with uh, via our senses. But there's more to desire than just the wish to have experience. Some things we have strong desires for which are not actually sensory. Think of love, think of uh, power, think of recognition, of um, importance, think of control, think of uh, respect. Now, these are all abstract qualities we can crave quite a bit. And you will agree with me that human beings are willing to go through tremendous length and to make considerable sacrifices to obtain these things. Yeah. Buddhist psychology calls this bhava tanha. The word bhava means something like becoming. Yeah. Being something that is static, still, that has essences, is a 
a concept that is quite suspicious in early Buddhism. Early Buddhists don't believe in being of any sort. Things aren't just. You know, they keep moving. The process Buddhist psychology calls is they keep becoming. They keep becoming otherwise. They keep changing. Yeah. So, Bhavadana means that things become other than they currently are. The big statement in Bhavadana is deficiency. Things as they are now are not enough. Yeah. That's the big message on Bhavadana. Not enough. We would like generally an increase. We would like this deficiency to be filled. We would like more. Yeah. More power, more money, more competence, more recognition, more love, more independence, more um, control. Yeah. All these things are abstract and they are perceived to be wanting. We, we are perceived, if you want to identify yourself with the deficiency, then we are, to perceived, are perceived being wanting in that respect. We're not loved enough, we're not powerful enough, not recognized enough, not rich enough. Yeah. So this can be a strongly motivating force in our lives, to fill that deficiency. If you think what people are willing to do for power, yeah, it's quite, quite amazing. You know, power doesn't actually taste very great. You can't eat it. It doesn't uh, feed your children. It's, um, um, it's quite often beyond what we have in immediate use, you know, power. It's a strange kind of experience. It's a bit... Like with the treasure trough and the virgin and the dragon who protects both, you know. Dragon has the power to protect the virgin and the treasure trough, but actually neither can't really do very much, neither with the virgin nor with the treasure trough, yeah. The only thing it, it's got, it's the power to keep others away from the virgin and the treasure trough, yeah. But actually, it can't really do much with either of them. So the whole kick of it is not actually... Uh, having some fun with the virgin or go and s- spend the money in the treasure trough. The only thing it gets out of is, is keeping it away from others. Yeah. I'm sure you know a few powerful people. And I'm not, pe- not speaking of people who are, you know, genuinely have general competence or authority or so, or, but people who enjoy power for the sake of it. So, Buddhist psychology states that much of our desire is focused not just on sensory things, but on things that we wish to hold as abstract uh, qualities. A third type of uh, desire is even uh, less obvious to Western ways of thinking, and Buddhist psychology calls this vipavatanha. You notice this is the opposite of bhavatanha. Vi means generally uh, a negation of that. So it's the desire to get rid of. It's the desire for things to stop, to end, to disappear. Yeah? It is the desire to, uh, for things to unbecome, if you want to be literal. Yeah? So the 
Now, what could that be? Yeah, other than uh, the somewhat far-fetched analogy to Freudian Thanatos drives or other suicidal uh, impulses, what could we wish to re- get rid of? Yeah. Well, there's quite a bit of things we could actually wish to get rid of. Yeah, We could wish to get rid of uh, 15 kilos of body or we could wish to get rid of our anger or I... I definitely would like to have a bit less impatience or you know there's quite a few things that come to mind that we often wish to get rid of. Now it's important that you make um, that you identify that in your say meditative practice. Yeah? You wish that your pain stops, you wish that the bell rings, you wish that a feeling goes away, you wish that your sleepiness subsides. Generally is very likely to be tainted by some vibhavatanha, by some what Buddhists call the desire to get rid of something. So if you have been thinking of desire as a sort of sensual, lustful, playful, delightful sort of thing, which uh, you'd like to rather have more of it than less, even though people are a bit down on it, uh, try to expand your notion of desire to this if the Buddha speaks of desire, then he means these three things. It doesn't just mean, he doesn't just mean to take all the fun out of your lives, as you may suspect. You know. Some people fear, you know, these Buddhists, they're going to take all the fun out of my life. <laughs> yeah. All I do there is sit there and transform into a sort of meditation mummy. Yeah. <laughs> and I just kind of, they take everything away and the final happiness is that nothing can be taken away from me anymore because <laughs> I've lost it already. I've given it, you know, with teeth gritting. I've kind of handed it all over. Yeah, just mummy's bliss. Yeah. No, the desire, as the Buddha understands that notion, is a profound force in our life. Just to be clear, without desire, nothing moves. Without desire, you're not here, I'm, I'm sure. Without desire, you don't meditate. Um, the question is, which type of desire? There are many brands of it. You know, the, the desires that are helpful are, um, we call them aspirations, or we call them wholesome intentions, or, you know, there is a, a legal version of it, if you want to say um, important is in our first orienting job to get in touch with that force. Yeah. Now, some of that comes up as I wish it would be other than it is. I wish there would be more of this. I wish I had one of those. I wish this would stop. I wish this would, or I wish I would stop and have to experience this. Consider for a moment how many desires we, how many of these last third category desires we enact, you know, the sweetness of finally falling asleep, yeah, pulling the blanket up, goodbye cruel world, yeah. <laughs> six hours, seven hours of safe annihilation, you know, disappearing in impunity into some sweet, dreamy realm, can be accompanied 
with quite a bit of vibhava tanha, if you wish. Uh, or to just absorb in work, you know. Stop thinking about your relationship problems and just kind of absorb in some stress, some good, solid, adrenaline-inducing stress that will preoccupy you, that will numb you out, that will give you a sense of vitality without actually having to feel. Ring a bell? If not, wonderful, you're to be congratulated. Anything that, that helps you numb out, you know, obvious drugs like work and um, legal and illegal uh, substances, um, but sometimes hardness, you know, just kind of go out into the cold, you know, having to not deal with confusing, subtle, murky things in myself, just having solid, clear pain or having... Um, a real hard challenge, you know, which is dangerous. You know, one of the attractiveness of danger is that it focuses the mind. You know? It takes me away from things I, I feel uneasy about, and I can feel gratified by meeting danger. You know? Suddenly, I feel unified. I feel clear. I have a sense of priority. I feel as if I'm made out of one cast. You know? There I am, not sure where I'm going to plant my next python, and there's a lot of air underneath my feet, and I'm definitely not going to think about the unpaid bills at home. Yeah? A lot of aliveness comes out of this. One of the reasons why people are engaging with dangerous things, you know, I mean deliberately engaging with dangerous things, is because we come back with a greater aliveness. We come back with a sense... <laughs> We crave, the more fragmented our lives are, the more distracted our minds are, we, the more we crave for unification. Yeah. And that craving for unification um, leads as much to meditative pursuits as it leads to um, you know, life-threatening <laughs> leisures, <laughs> which, in which both, both basically hold the promise of unification of mind the life-threatening um, adventure sport just cranks up the volume and because I, the volume is cranked up, the rest of my life drops away and I feel suddenly whole doing one thing. Yeah, that is a type of unification. The meditator goes completely the opposite direction and says, well, I start off by paying attention not to things particularly intense, but I'm willing to pay attention to the most boring of things, you know, one in-breath and one out-breath. And if I do that for a while, suddenly the mind also unifies. Miraculously, uh, if it reaches some stillness, it actually starts enjoying this and deliberately becoming even more still, you know, gains the sweetness of unification without the volume. Both of these movements are the wish to have a unified experience of ourselves as whole, as intact, as vital, as alive. Desires show themselves in terms of tension. Yeah? If you want a psychoanalytic take, then generally you look for the tension. Yeah? Where, where is tension? 
um, if you are a meditator, then you generally look where where is some direction in your mind, something that wants something, something that wants away from something, something that lacks. Yeah, we look for directionality. There is in our mind there are forces of will always have a direction. Yeah. We notice the mind goes to some place. It goes to uh, my leg, or it goes away from that leg, or it it goes out to sounds, or it goes to a particular type of memory. Yeah? We, we take note of this movements. We take note of the force that is behind these movements. One clear way how types of desire will manifest in, say, formal meditation is in form of the five hindrances. Yeah? These five meditative hindrances are there. Uh, they're easily summed up. The first one is sense desire. The second one is uh, ill will. third one is sleepiness, drowsiness, and numbness. The fourth one is um, has two parts. The first one is restlessness, physical in nature, and the second part is a mental agitation. And the fifth of these entrances is doubt. Now, if you are actually sitting here in formal meditation in a in a meditation hall, uh, sense desire. What does that look like? You know, you can't just kind of turn around and sink your white little choppers into a neat big f- fat Big Mac. Yeah, can't do that. And it's not here. It's not happening here. So, how does sense desire operate? Well, you will evoke a vivid image of uh, the said. Uh, Burger, and uh, you will fantasize about it. Yeah. Three and a half of those five meditation hindrances are thought. Yeah. So if you feel assailed by thought, as some of you tell me in your meditation, there is a point when you actually have to investigate what kind of thought is this. Yeah. Recurring thoughts, or always the same thoughts, or a theme that is happening or uh, are they thoughts about pleasant things or are they thoughts about unpleasant things uh, are they frightening thoughts are they confused thoughts yeah. there is a moment when you actually rather than just declaring them consistently as meditative obstacles which is what you do at the beginning to come back to the breath if you find that your mind is consistently preoccupied with a particular type of thought, you know, there's a moment when it's actually look, worth looking at it. You know, is, this, is this desire? Or is this ill will? You know, am I holding a grudge? Am I uh, indulging in a little sequence of hate fantasies? You know, and then she says that, and I will tell her this, and then, yeah. yeah so it's, interesting to hold these five hindrances as uh, a grid. You want to recognize them. So let me say a few things about those because they are, you're likely to have met them already. Um, The five hindrances are what's happening. They're not just happening to Buddhists in books or so. They're happening to meditators. If you don't have jhanic experiences by now, then it is likely due to the activity of hindrances in your mind. That's what's happening before the jhanic activity you know, kicks in. That's what distinguishes jhanic experience, 
from normal mind activity, the presence of hindrances. So the sense desire is likely to evoke images, thoughts that you feel are pleasant. And a part in you wishes to dwell on that which is pleasant. It is the simple and harmless uh, wish that something pleasant becomes stronger, that something pleasant persists, that something pleasant remain here for you to be in relationship to it, engage with it, you know, fantasize a little bit, hold it, savor it. It is harmless, you know. It's not immoral. It's nothing to do with morals. You know, five hindrances are not about ethics, just to be clear. They are about collectedness of mind. You know, and things can be, in terms of ethics, absolutely kosher and okay and completely blameless. And yet, in terms of collectedness, in terms of samadhi, they may be disastrous. You have to make this clear to yourself. Some things um, are not in in the domain of ethics, but in the domain of stillness of mind or the contrary of agitation, Albeit, albeit morally blameless, they may still be very, very detrimental. Yeah, you have to be clear about this. So, sense desire is—it sounds and feels harmless. Yeah. Desirous people are generally nice people. They like to enjoy. They like to share. Yeah, they generally have something attractive. They—they they exude warmth. It's nice being with them. Yeah, we know that. Shakespeare knows that. Um, So if you are afflicted with sense desire, this may feel quite harmless. You know, you have a nice little thought coming up and you follow that little thought and there is a certain warmth that goes out from the thought. Something radiant maybe, something, you know, enticing. You enjoy it doesn't matter whether it's a Rilke poem or whether it's a fantasy where you go with your girlfriend once you're through with this dreadful retreat um, or whether it is how you're going to solve software problems or you know what recipes you're going to try out on your family. Any of this is a type of desire. You know? It's not just sex that is desire. You, know? you can have an awful lot of desire about other things than sex. Yeah. So desire is the wish for something pleasant to appear or if it has appeared to stay, for you to indulge in it, for you to play with it, to hold it close, to savor it, yeah, to enact it in some way. Yeah. That is what Buddhism calls the obstacle of sense desire in meditation. Harmless enough, at best you waste time. You sit here thinking about recipes. You come here, you know, to do meditation retreats. You, you know, get everything worked out. Your mother is coming to look after the kids, you know. Your husband is kitted out with supplies in the fridge. And, um, you know, you've kind of geared that all up, and then you come down here and you think about recipes. <laughs> yeah. 
sounds harmless, but actually it's quite detrimental because a mind that is seeking pleasure, that seeks the gratification of desire, is a mind that will not become still. You see, this is kind of this kind of oh, where is something? Where this? Oh, this is nice. I'm not. Maybe this. Yeah, this is kind of movement. Yeah. In Thai language, you have uh, the the word for uh, an old ledge. Yeah, is a yeah? It's somebody who is an old snakehead. Yeah, an old snakehead is kind of constantly on the outlook. Where is something nice? You know, something I could enjoy. Yeah? This kind of mind is the desire gratification seeking mind. Yeah. You're kind of constantly scanning. Is this a nice thought? Well, these are nice sounds. Well, this is nice incense. This is, yeah. You're always on the lookout for something to stimulate you. Yeah. If you want to be psychological, it's a, it's an oral position. You know, you sit there waiting to be stimulated, looked after. The world is your big teat. It has to feed you. Yeah. <laughs> this is your. This is the oral position. Very clearly, that is. Yeah. You are there to receive, yeah. And obviously, this activity, once you affirm this, or once you establish this as the norm, yeah, will stop the mind from becoming still, from finding contentment, from associating more intimately with, say, the breath or any object of your meditation. Yeah. So it's important that you understand these fundamental principles, that you understand it not in Buddhist language, but you understand it in your own mind, that as long as you keep seeking a happiness that comes through experience in your senses, and be that in your mental sense, your mind will not settle. Yeah. That's the problem with desire. Well, the other problem is that it doesn't really make you as happy as you expect it would. Yeah. Or it makes you happy about 30 seconds and then you think, where is the next one? Or what do we now? What do we do now? Or so. No. That's the other problem. Even if you get it, you know, it doesn't do what you expect it to do. The second of the hindrances is very similar, but it's the flip side of desire. It's ill will. It's your, you resent something. Rather than being looking for it or wanting to savor it, you resent. You are averse. You wish it ill, yeah? while desire is the attraction and the wish to keep, to hold, to take close to you, to, to savor, then ill will be appetized, the wish to push it away, to cut yourself off from it, to distance yourself, to, to not engage with it, to not have it. Yeah? It's more complicated than that. Generally, you enjoy being agonized by it in some way, you know. You enjoy being annoyed by it, yeah. There is a type of vitalization that takes place in anger or indignation or that makes you more alive, yeah. So some people, quite a few people, at least half if not more, by my reckoning, enjoy not enjoying themselves. Yeah? They enjoy being miffed or peeved. or They enjoy niggling. They enjoy fault-finding. They enjoy being 
um, outraged or indignant about something. One of the things it does, it is making us alive. Yeah? Nothing to get your circulation going is a little bit of rage. You know, sort of 30 seconds of real rage. Oh, God, you really feel energy. Yeah? You feel alive, you feel empowered, you feel vital. Yeah? That's one of the things that rage does. But it's not just rage. You know, sometimes... As desire can be quite subtle and saying, well, this is a very nice, very inspiring thought. Let us, let us mull that one over a little bit, yeah? You know, aversion says, or ill will says, well, I'm not really averse, dear. I'm just kind of sober, yeah? I'm just kind of critically sober, yeah? I'm just a little bit judgmental, maybe, yeah? Just a little bit, just kind of discerning. Let's call it discerning, yeah? Yeah. This is not aversion. No, this is not vinegar in my blood. This is just clear, sober discernment. Yeah? I'm no fool here. Yeah, I'm not going to pull the wool over my eyes. I, I know what I know. Yeah? And then you kind of investigate, apparently investigate. But really what you do is you cultivate a degree of aversion. You cultivate a type of unkindness. You cultivate what Buddhist psychology calls a type of ill will. Yeah? Opposite of benevolence, you have ill will. That can sound quite plausible. You know, often it has a lot of intellectual justifications, rationalization. And like desire, it can um, make your pursuit of stillness futile. You know, it's quite agitating. A mind that is... Um, in afflicted with ill will is not going to be quiet. It's never going to unify. You know? So it's, it stays there, generally in a sort of cognitive mode, passing judgment on the world. You know? Generally unfavorable judgment. You know? With a particular acuity for things that are not okay, for things that are missing, or for things that are, you know, not proper or things that are not what they pretend to be or for the fault. The Pali word for it is Randagavesi. It is somebody who looks for the crack in things. Yeah. Yeah. You always kind of actually the English word fault finding is pretty close to the Pali, come to think of it. Yeah. If you think of fault as a not as a mistake, but actually a, a fissure. Yeah. So that type of attitude is very common. It's very common amongst thinking people. Often the sort of acidity in the mind. Yeah. It's quite common amongst people who investigate or invest a lot into thinking processes. It's never really peaceful. It's, it's, its telltale sign is the, the genuine lack of contentment, you know. However accurate it seems to be in its observant nature, it is never really content. There's always something missing. There's always something not okay. There's always something that could be better. Again, this is about thought. In formal meditation practice, this will come up a thought. It will start by... 
thinking that your neighbor just sneezes too loud, yeah, or if she only stopped her loud breathing, or um, the. I wish the guy with his nylon trousers sits at the back of the meditation hall rather than in front of me. God, I wish I wouldn't have to sleep with these fresh air fanatics in the same room. Or you know, you will, you will come in, you'll be inspired. All people, wonderful bodhisattva-like supporters of the holy path and so forth. And then, after a while, you think, Oh God, she does move a little more than need be, really. I'm sure she doesn't have that much pain. I mean, she's just not not dedicated, really. Yeah. Or you're kind of in the line and say, "Well, that's about a lot of beans you're taking here." Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, there's all kinds of things that come in. You know, big and small. And after a while, you know, you may obsess with an individual, but uh, most of the time, if that individual got exchanged for another individual, you would obsess with that one. You know. <laughs> You may believe in the individual story, you know, if only she wasn't here, I could really meditate, you know. <laughs> that heavy breathing in my neck really does me, does me in, you know. She really messes, my, messes with my jhanas. But <laughs> if she wasn't there, you know, you would find something else to mess with your jhanas because simply you're geared to find something else, you know. You're geared for being antagonized, annoyed, cheated out of your retreat by ill-considerate folk. So there is a a pattern. And it's, when I speak of orientation in your mind, you need to recognize your own pattern. And then you need to get help for that one. You need to figure out when this pattern is at its worst, when when it is at its weakest. You need to learn. Nobody can do that for you. No technique will do that for you. You need to figure out what you bring to this practice in terms of your virtues, in terms of your temperament, in terms of your challenges. Teachers will help you, but they generally, if they're genuine, they will tell you of what they have experienced. That may not be your story. Or what they tell you now is what is interesting to them now, but it would have been interesting interesting to you to hear what they told you 30 years ago, yeah? So you need to figure out where you can get help or how you can address what you have found out is preoccupying you. That's why we're doing this Vedana exercise, making statistics, you know, pleasant distraction, unpleasant distraction, mental distraction, sensory distraction, yeah? You want to find out whether you are more prone to be stimulated by unpleasant things or by pleasant things, whether you are more stimulated by anxiety or doubt or anger. These are important insights for your life. So, third obstacle, sleepiness. Well, there are many reasons for sleepiness. Some, in some of the groups this came up. Just to be very clear, one reason for sleepiness is fatigue and exhaustion particularly in an early stage of a retreat, you will have some catching up to do. Many of you will lead busy, fast-paced lives, and it is to be expected that when you come here, in a safe, not particularly stimulating environment, some of your organisms will decide this is the time to, to cool off, yeah? to chill, yeah? to recoup. And one way that can manifest is just sleepiness. 
Another aspect is that we're doing actually quite hard work, although we're just sitting around, apparently. It is actually quite hard work to keep directing attention, to keep strengthening and emphasizes intentionality to introspective processes. This is a lot harder than it looks from outside. But sleepiness can also have other reasons than exhaustion. Sleepiness can be um, a result of your willfulness. Yeah. So if you push, it may be the case that your mind doesn't want to be pushed or parts of your mind resent being pushed. And if you don't talk to these parts, they decide to sabotage you. Yeah? If you overrule them or if you don't acknowledge them, um, just you know, walk over them and decide they go on retreat with you now, um, they may, these parts you have overruled, they may actually uh, kick, kick back you know, and say, well, you can drag me into the meditation room in the morning. You can make me do all these dreadful things, but I'm not going to stay awake, you know, as soon as I can. Whenever she lets go of me, you know, whenever she likes me to become quiet and still, I'm going to balk. Yeah. I'm just going to roll up, sleep, you know, conk out. So, willfulness is a very good way. If you want to get sleepy, just treat your mind in a willful, un, an un, uncaring way. Yeah. Just boss it around, be bolshy, um, give orders, bark, yeah. and you'll likely experience either annoyance or sleepiness. Sometimes, you know, it's more subtle. You just push. You know, you say, well, you've got to do this. You know, intensity is crucial. There's nothing in this world happening if we don't invest. You know, just this was difficult to find the time. This was difficult to arrange that. Now I'm really going to let rip. Yeah? And that may have a backlash simply in terms of sleepiness. You may find that your will isn't really matched by sensitivity with what is actually happening. You haven't oriented enough. You haven't related enough to your experience. Another reason for sleepiness may be that you have aversion against what you have to do. This is subtle. Sleepiness camouflages the aversion underneath. You know, there's a subtle resistance against being here, or there's a resistance against experiencing what you're experiencing. And one way of getting out of the situation is by just kind of self-anesthetization. You, know? you fall asleep. So, this would entail that you actually inquire what you are resisting. You, know? you inquire what the sleepiness... Um, in fact, the, the good question would be what you get out of the sleepiness, you know. What is the advantage of being sleepy? What do I not have to deal with? What do I not experience by virtue of uh, mercifully dozing off whenever it emerges? Sometimes sleepiness is um, the result of a, a defense of the psyche. And um, maybe I should say a, a, a sane defense. You know? 
sleepiness may may occur when we try to deal with things we don't really have the ground to deal with or we don't have the resources to deal with. So one way the mind stops us from actually confronting this is by uh, lulling us into sleepiness, making us doze off. So sleepiness is not something you can, with a few tricks, cure. You will Any serious way of tackling sleepiness will need to consider these five options and will need to look at closely which one it is. Obviously there are tricks, you know, you can, when you feel sleepy, make sure that your posture is very upright, make sure that your breathing is deep, you can open your eyes, you can massage your earlobes, these are all uh, time-honed uh, techniques, but they don't solve the problem, you know, they're stopgap measures. They may get you through an hour, but you will need to address the issue that is behind sleepiness in your life, uh, no doubt. The massaging of earlobes will not address that issue. Yeah? However canonical a technique this may be. Yeah? Um, generally, there is a lot of res- resistance against sleepiness. We consider it shameful and it's um, looked down upon. We rate it often uh, as a lack of dedication or a lack of serious. So it is not easy to be sleepy in a group. You know? So one way we can help ourselves is by acknowledging and allowing ourselves to be sleepy. Stop making it a shameful thing. If it is shameful, then obviously we try not to have it as long as possible. And when we can no longer deny that it is happening, we have lost many, many options we would have had had we acknowledged it earlier on. Restlessness is an obvious it's a kind of itch it is a physical itch it manifests as different type of sensations in the body things you find maybe quite fascinating things which may be um, charged with anxieties um, things that surprise you you may have all kinds of funny funny physical sensation you know ants walking along your neck or funny uh, sort of highly vibrating experiences in your knee or a sudden pull in your thigh. You may uh, suspect that the numbness in your foot is the, you know, the the telltale sign of gangrena, or you know, you may all kinds of things you may may come up in your mind around physical sensations. You can obsess with sensations, and obviously there is generally an appeal to change posture to do something to fidget around, to scratch, to stand up and move, to, you know, um, crack your vertebrae. Generally, this restlessness goes together with such a strong pull to do something. If you do that, you will notice that it immediately gets better, you know, the great relief, the itch is being scratched, uh, the vertebrae are adjusted, uh, the tension is being relieved. The gangrena is, is averted. Um, and uh, 30 seconds later, something else crops up. Um, in other words, it doesn't stop. It seems to be, this is my theory, I cannot really master canonical uh, statements on this, but it seems to be that, it, that 
the mind uses physical sensation to occupy itself. It seems to be a kind of pattern to not become more quiet. A kind of almost despairing way of avoiding me becoming more quiet. Its mental counterpart, called agitation, is th- goes back on to our capacity for sensitivity. We can be ethically, we're ethically sensible beings. The Buddha, as other religious teachers, assumed that human beings actually have a degree of sensibility, uh, sorry, sensitivity for what is right and what is not right. Yeah, and we. Uh, can sometimes not acknowledge this and do things we actually know are not right and they make us feel bad afterwards. Yeah. We have compunctions or we you know, we feel guilty. I'm not speaking of a sort of lasting, uh, non-redeemable Protestant guilt or so. I'm speaking of um, maybe something like remorse, yeah. something that indicates... The sphere of values in which I, I have no choice, but I, I, I sense in myself, I have not really lived up to what I know to be right. And it makes me feel bad. Yeah. And this thought comes up in our meditation. Suddenly we start feeling really bad about things we have done or we have not done. Um, things we feel we, we should have really done and we shouldn't have really done. So... We get caught up with uh, disturbing activities of mind that all center around our moral or ethical failings. Um, That can be quite disturbing. And you cannot do anything really about these things because right now you're on a meditation retreat. Generally they pertain to situations and people who are not here and you cannot really make amends. So... Practically, there is nothing you can do to readdress this. But you keep, in a sort of self-punitive way, that's the catch, regurgitate situations, your failures, your lack of uh, care, or your lack of sensitivity, or your deplorable... um, Deficient deficiency in your moral integrity, or whatever. Yeah, you kind of keep you keep regurgitating this, and you keep making yourself feel bad. Yeah. So that's a meditative obstacle. Thinking about the things you have done wrong, while at the same time being in a situation where you cannot redress anything. This is something to be able to recognize. Yeah. What can you do about this? You can acknowledge. You can say, right, this feels really bad. Um, I need to do something about this. Right now I cannot really do something about this. But I promise myself I am going to apologize or I go make amends in some way. Or I'm going to learn in all sobriety the lesson I have to learn from this. And I will not repeat this. Yeah. I put in any effort to not repeat it. You can make this kind of promise to yourself rather than um, continuing to punish yourself. So, 
again that is thought yeah the first one desire is th- thought aversion and ill will the second is thought sleepiness no is not thought uh restlessness the first part also is not thought but then this mental agitation is kind of is thought again yeah so and the last of the obstacles the fifth doubt again is is an emotion but it's challenged it's uh, charged with thought so doubt generally is something we believe is a question we shouldn't have yeah it's a question mark that shouldn't be there in our minds our our standard procedure to deal with doubt is think faster, think probability scenarios. What speaks in favor of it? How can we possibly allay it somehow? You know, what can we construe so that it proves to be wrong? Generally, these constructions are not very solid. You know. It can take a long time to convince ourselves of something not being the case, which we suspect is the case and then a slight shift in the theme a new fact comes up and the whole construction crumbles again so it's very difficult to cope with doubt on a mental cognitive level it's very difficult because doubt is an emotion doubt happens here it is the feeling here that I shouldn't have this question and it is the despairing attempt to quell that feeling down here with cognitive constructions. They're doomed to fail. That's why we keep doubting. That's why the process of doubt keeps going. People have differing degrees of tolerance for doubt. Some people just, you know, if they're in doubt, they can't act. They go paralyzed. They stop eating. They are probably more... I think this is the favorite type of people. Um, Other people can live with high degrees of doubt in major areas of their lives and just kind of continue. I tend to believe that they are worse off because um, they have a higher degree, uh, they're higher performing doubters. They can continue functioning and yet some of the foundations are not there. So you have to find out whether this is an issue. Doubt means that you do not know something and you feel you shouldn't not know this. Yeah? You feel this shouldn't be, this question shouldn't be there. Yeah? Now, sometimes it's as simple as that, that you, you keep circling around something that you in fact cannot know. Yeah? And you just haven't given yourself permission to not know. Some kind of superego and position states you should know everything and there are things you simply don't know and you kind of hover and circle and, and work, work yourself to kind of clarify something that simply cannot at this moment be clarified. Now, there are many things that cannot be clarified at this moment. And thinking more frantically about them doesn't really make them more clear. Doubt is not something that can be resolved by thought. I think that's an important piece. And the attempt to think things through in the hope that the doubt would subside is not something that, in my experience, has actually worked. If you recognize doubt 
as thought. Uh, if you recognize the thought aspect of doubt, then you have met generally your compensating activity. You haven't actually met the feeling of doubt. So it is necessary that you get in touch with the feeling tone of doubt. Once you're willing to be with that feeling tone, best in the body somewhere, where you know that doubt lives in your body, you have to find out where that is. If you can stay there with your attention, these are your best chances to resolve doubt. So, desire, aversion, doubt, and agitation. Three and a half or five mental obstacles are types of thought. It may be worth, if you have to do with recurrent thought patterns, recurrent themes in your meditative practice, to just kind of try to identify. Not everyone, but, you know, the the big ones, the recurrent ones, you know. What is this? Is this more desire? Is this more um, doubt? Is this more agitation? Is this more aversion? Just to kind of get a feel what the theme behind your particular recurring thought is. Obviously, you don't want to do that with every thought, otherwise you give up meditation, you go into a kind of permanent analysis. But that's not the The point is you single out, you've been meditating for two and a half days, you single out something when, when it is recurrent, when it's been, uh, you know, repeats itself. And this may well be worth looking closer at, holding, you know, say, okay, what is this really? What kind of energy is really in this recurring theme? Yeah? So, I'd like to leave that with you for tonight. Um, I'm sure there are many things could be said. I wish I had clean and effective uh, remedies for each of those five hindrances. The truth is, their remedy lie in your life. You know, you cannot meditatively tackle these five hindrances because they have the root in your life. Yeah? Nevertheless, there are a few things you can do. You can decide that whenever you meet desire or aversion or ill will in your practice that you do not follow such thoughts, that you do not affirm their presence in your mind, that you do not give them your energy, that you do not talk to them. That is very helpful if you do that, quite clearly. With um, sleepiness, obviously the tricks, I think I've mentioned them, uh, try to stop defending against it. Be willing to be sleepy. That is your best bet to start to be able to transform it. Feel into the body where the sleepiness is noticeable. That is where you can be vigilant and stay with that sensation. This is your best bet to stay awake. You can stay awake a whole hour contemplating the sensations of sleepiness in your body. Agitation, restlessness, my my simple two cents on this is look for the best comfortable posture at the beginning and then stay that way. And don't budge. If you can, don't budge. If you feel like you need to change posture, negotiate with yourself three times. You know? 
If you have changed and you feel like changing again, negotiate again three times. Yeah? So you don't go into a kind of compulsive fidgeting, itching around pattern. If you need to change posture, by all means do. Uh, if I go around and point out where I feel you could improve something in the way you sit, uh, take that as an offering. If you feel I'm inflicting pain of you in you or this is not helpful, feel free to go back to your usual posture. I have no illusions that you will be back in your usual posture less than three minutes after I have. <laughs> but if, if you sense that I have three or four times shifted the same shoulder, it is probably an indication that something fairly obvious uh, is asymmetrical in your posture, yeah? which may be useful for you to just consider. Uh, that's why I'm doing this. I don't uh, harbor the illusion that I'm going to straighten you out here anyway. Remedy for agitation of mind is basically acknowledgement. Yes, there are things I should have done better. No, right now I cannot do about it. Yes, I'm going to promise myself I will act on that impulse to make amends when I get back, when I come back into a situation where I can actually do something. No, I will not continue to punish myself by reiterating this thought, by making myself feel bad. Um, yeah, this may be helpful attitudes. As for doubt, um, acknowledge that you cannot resolve. Give yourself the permission to not know things. And investigate doubt at the level where it is somatic, at the level where you are in touch with the heart and with the body, rather than try to make the doubt go away by clouding it over with thought or by uh, argumentatively uh, prove it wrong. Good enough for tonight. Let us um, be quiet for two, three minutes and then we'll finish with our recitation.